it is good to be here. Uh, thank you for having me, of course. Um, it is good to... I've heard about Philbert. I've just never been to Philbert. Uh, and it's just good to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, certainly, Redeeming Grace, you know, send our greetings to you through them, for them. Uh, but it is good to be here. Um, and the scripture this morning is going to come from Psalm 36. Uh, and we're going to be in the Psalms. And... Um, Different psalms have different genres. Um, Some of the genres contained in the book of Psalms, not limited to, but a few of them would be a psalm of lament, thanksgiving, confession, and wisdom. I think Psalm 36, the one before us today, has a few different genres represented within it, uh, but I think the overall genre could be considered a wisdom psalm. The reason why is it because it contrasts the way of the wicked and the way of the upright or the way of the righteous. Uh, so I'd ask everybody to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light Do we see light? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we certainly need your wisdom to see the realities of evil, to hate the realities of evil, and to keep from the realities of evil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Often, it is very helpful to know and see what not to do or not to be, to have a better picture of what is good to do and be. For example, work hard unto the Lord is something we ought to pursue. And so a biblical picture of a sluggard can be very helpful in knowing what working hard is and what it is not. We also have the picture of Mary and Martha, where we see that constantly doing all of the things and having to sacrifice time with Jesus to get it all done is not 
what working hard unto the Lord looks like. Or the picture of a man who has given his life to his work only to the neglect of his family, friends, and the body of Christ. It's not what it looks like. In the same way, may we learn from the ways of the wicked and not dismiss them as a distant category that doesn't relate or help us. I think most people agree that in our culture, the lines of good and evil are becoming more defined and obvious. Evil is more visible Whereas before, when people had the decency to hide their skeletons in the closet, now we see skeletons parading around in our schools, neighborhoods, cities, and country. And while we're on the topic, do you know what really bugs me? Do you know what I just cannot stand in this world? Me. It would be easy for us to spend all or most of our energies on naming and proclaiming those people that live the wicked way. And the results would be empty, for it's a way to ignore or downplay our own. And when we downplay the evil that lives in me and through me, we also downplay the love of God for me. And the results, emptiness. So yes, evil is more obvious. But my question is, is the darkness blinding you to your own? It is the wickedness, arrogance, and ugliness of sin, when revealed by the grace of God, that shines forth the beauty, namely preciousness of his love. And so the overall point that I would like to spend time on this morning in Psalm 36, it's this, your steadfast love, O Lord, is infinite and intervening. Your steadfast love, O Lord, is infinite and intervening. According to our psalm, What ought to be the response to an amazing truth like that? Your love, O Lord, is infinite and intervening. What what ought to be our response? And that's where the sermon outline you have before you, this this ought to be our response. One, to be humble and hateful of all evil. Two, be full and satisfied in his steadfast love. And three, be prayerful and watchful along the path. So we're going to look at that first response of the Christian or of the upright of heart in response to the steadfast love of God that's infinite and intervening. What ought to be our response? Well, first, to be humble and hateful of all evil. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. 
What an opening word. Transgression. Rebellion against God's authority. An offense against God's law. The wicked are following their own hearts as sin is what speaks to them deep in their heart right into an outright rejection of God. J.A. Matir said this, the issue is not whether God exists, but whether he matters. Not his reality, but his relevance. It is the position of many people all the time. It is the position of believers some of the time. Not as a stated creed, but as a practice. So it is helpful to know how the wicked operate. But it is deception to think that this does not at all describe us in verses 1 through 4. At any point in our walk with God. It is not who we are anymore. Verses 1 through 4 do not define us. Do not tell the whole story of us. But at times does describe us. We need to remember, too, that at one time before Christ, it did describe us 100% and define us. Thanks be to God and his infinite and intervening love in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that as Christians, we do still engage, interact, and involve ourselves actively and passively with evil. So, may we be humble and hateful of all evil. I included the word all to make sure that the finger always gets pointed back to us as well in our direction. Take note of verse 2. The wicked's eyes... Where are their eyes? Where is their focus? Well, it's not on the rule and authority and goodness and power of God. No, his eyes are on self as he props himself up as high as he possibly can. The wicked places his own thoughts, desires, and preferences on the throne to be the subjective standard of his life. There seems to be in, in Psalm 36 an awareness to some degree of sin, an awareness of God's law and God's way and a revolting against it. And the wicked's response is, who cares? Living as if there's no real repercussions of his self-appointed, self-seeking sinful ways. They're hidden from plain sight, the wicked says. Or God doesn't care that much. Either way, no real repercussions. Maybe like a parent that occasionally threatens with no follow-up, and the child ends up thinking, they don't really care about what I do. When our sin is hiding, 
there's much less reason to hate it. And all the more reason to focus our attention on the upkeep of the roost. At our church, we have something very similar to the children's challenge, where we invite children to come up and we directly teach them, address them, uh, encourage them, and we interact with the children, and the children sometimes do and say things that cause everyone to laugh heartily, except that child's parents. Because if you are not their parents, you can look at a child's inability to hide their sin and smile. Not at the sin itself, but the fact that they aren't hiding it. And we can laugh in response to what they do and say that is not good, only because we know that we think and say and do things all of the time that are not good. Children are just really bad at hiding it. And older children, teenagers, and adults become preoccupied with hiding it. As if that is what God desires. Nicholas McDonald, in his book called Faker, shares about his childhood this way. I grew up in the church, which is what you might call a faker breeding ground. There I learned to slick my hair to the side and regurgitate answers to the Bible questions. It's easier than you might think. Kids, what has four wheels, drives down the highway, and blares a siren during emergencies? Jesus! No, but young man, you have a heart for the Lord. The music director at my church dubbed me Smiling Nick because that's all I ever did. I showed up. I smiled, I left. What are we called to do with evil? What are we to learn at church to do with our own sin and evil? To be humble and hateful of all of it. Verses 1 through 4 describes a lifestyle of evil, a comprehensive wickedness that starts deep within his heart and makes its way out as high in his own self-view as possible, in his deceitful words, his foolish acts, and his bad thoughts and plans. He does not fear God, verse 1 says. He does not dread him. He does not dread what's coming. He does not think there's any real repercussions. Verse 4, he does not reject evil. This is, of course, in contrast to the love of God, which is where the psalmist goes in verse 5, which is precisely, when properly understood, allows us to see the wickedness of our sin and to confess it to him instead of being complacent about it or sneaky about it. So, secondly, what ought to be our response? Second, to be full and satisfied in his steadfast love. Verses 5 through 9, let's look there. (coughs) 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So in verses 5 and 6, we have this incredible description of the steadfast love of God. It's a description of who our God is, the God who the wicked do not worship, love, or serve, and falsely think that they don't answer to. But in verses 5 and 6, describes his wonderful, infinite love, all wrapped up in his infinite character and identity. It says his love extends to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds. So the word love here um, is hesed. So, so actually in the Hebrew, it doesn't say the steadfast love. It just says the love. But because hesed is used here, which really gets at God's unfailing covenantal love. I think the translator did a wonderful job saying the steadfast love. Why? Because his love isn't going anywhere. It will never fail. It will never waver. Why? Because it's the covenant love of God. This is what we're celebrating in this song. One commentator noticed how the first two there your steadfast love and your faithfulness, they go together, do they not? That, that because God is faithful, we can, we can be sure that his love will be faithful and steadfast and unfailing and unwavering. And then he knows the, the other two, that his righteousness in verse 6 goes with his judgments. That because God is righteous, we know his judgments will be just. And because God is faithful, we know his love will last. His wonderful intervening love, all in response to his perfect righteousness and just judgments. And in verse 6, the culmination, the very last line, man and beast you save, O Lord. Can you say that this morning as a personal testimony of God's love. I am here, and my testimony is, man and beast, you save, O oh Lord. How does the steadfast love of God, the intervening love, the infinite love of God, affect us in the face of evil all around us and the evil within us? His love humbles us and causes us to hate all of it. Man and beast, you save, O oh Lord. I mean, how does that really sound? Filbert Presbyterian Church. Man and beast, he saves. So let us not flatter ourselves in our own eyes, verse 2, 
according to our own subjective standard, but feast on the precious, steadfast love of God for who? Man and beast. Verses 7 through 9, we have a, a taste of the satisfaction and the fullness of his steadfast love. In verse 7, we are no longer separated from God, living in self-flattery and darkness under the perfect wrath of God, no longer a brute beast, but now a child, verse 7, a child resting Peace and comfort under the wings of our God. Under the protection, under the perfections of God. In verse 8, we see the fullness and the satisfaction at the reception of God's love. And when I use reception, I, I really do want you to think of a wedding reception here. Kind of a double meaning here. Yes, God's love is coming to us and we're receiving it. But, but let us also give the picture of a reception and how much joy and usually food and usually fullness and usually satisfaction there is at a wedding reception. In verse 8, we see the fullness and satisfaction of the reception of God's love. The feast that is fitting and right and good to mark the occasion just like a wedding reception. So the Lord's church is for beasts that God has saved. The Lord's supper, when you participate in that, is for beasts that God has saved. And so taste and see and experience the fullness and satisfaction of his love, his covenant love, his love that will never fail or waver. Food and drink that fulfills and satisfies not found anywhere else or in anything else except for Jesus, the Messiah alone. God's household is not where his children need to go, run, and hide in sin and shame, but can be children who are enjoying the infinite steadfast love of God. So be full and satisfied in his steadfast love. And as you enjoy it, be full from it. As you experience the love of God, may you pursue what is good and right. And that's where we find verses 10 through 12. So the last response that we ought to have to the infinite and intervening love of God is be prayerful and watchful along the path. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. <coughs> oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So verse 10, the upright in heart which is in direct contrast to the wicked, verses 1 through 4. The upright in heart. What does that really mean? Someone that is not without evil, because 
remember, be humble and hateful of all evil, but upright in heart. Uh, someone whose heart has been changed to fear God instead of ignore him. So be prayerful and watchful, you Christians, you upright in heart. Sometimes the scriptures say blameless. Be prayerful and watchful along the path. Now, along the path here is not found in our text, but it is found all over the Psalms, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And it is indirectly found in verse 4 as it describes the way of the wicked or the path of the wicked. In contrast here, we have the way of the upright in heart or the path. It's certainly a biblical picture picture that I think is actually in Psalm 36 as well. It's part of wisdom literature. The prayers of the Christian prays for his feet in verse 11. Prays for his feet. That his foot would not fall like the wicked. So again, he doesn't, I don't think, David, the psalmist, he doesn't picture the wicked as this altogether separate, unrelated category to himself. No, he sees his propensity to stray. He sees the wicked that he's struggling with, and he's praying, let not my foot slip up, just like I was just speaking about the evil and the wicked. Let not my head my view of self be arrogant and prideful, just like verse 2, the wicked. So, how have you been arrogant this past week and thought you were better than them? Again, this is not about turning a blind eye to evil around you or within you. No, the very opposite in light of God's love, do we see light? And part of that light is the wickedness that he's delivering us from. The wickedness that we still battle with as a believer. See it. All of it. Yes, the evil out there. And yes, the evil in here. See it. Reject it. But may we never think that we are on our own two feet better than they. Man and beast, you save, O oh Lord. We are not cut from a finer cloth than they. Because remember, the gospel is not for good Carolinians. Man and beast, you save, O oh Lord. So prayer in verses 10 through 12, that is godly, is a humble recognition that I am weak and could easily fall into pride, who could easily be led astray with one tug of the wickedness. When we hear the Pharisees' obnoxious prayer in the temple in Luke 18, where he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give all the tithes. I give tithes of all that I get. 
we think, well, I would never pray like that. That's just deplorable. But I'll think it and tell others about it, but never pray it. And of course, the tax collector in that passage, Luke 18, stands in the back of the church, a distance with his head down, and he just prays, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. A humble and hateful response to the steadfast love of God. So be prayerful and watchful along the path. And of course, verses 10 through 12 don't negate the reality of the sure, infinite love of God that we read about in verses 5 through 9. No, the intervening love of God continues to intervene moment by moment as the Christian walks out the sanctifying love of God, where he says, you are my child now. I love you, and I will teach you and correct you and rebuke you and train you to walk along the path. And in verse 12, we have a very loving warning. There, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. I recently came across the part in the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian interacts with worldly wise men and worldly wise men, his advice was very persuading and convincing where he tells Christian who's leaving the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city along the path, runs into worldly wise men who says, you know, that big burden on your back, there's an easier way to get rid of it. There's a faster way to get rid of it. So instead of going along the path, go this way to morality, and you don't have to experience any of the danger, any of the trials, any of the length that we're talking about. No, just go this way. Get your burden relieved faster, because we all know you want that burden relieved. So he takes worldly wise men's advice, and he goes only to realize that as he tries to obey the law, his burden just gets bigger and bigger and worse and uglier. And he falls to the ground and he thinks, what hope do I have left? And in that moment, evangelist comes to him again and says, why are you along this path? The evangelist also gives him this. He says, now there are three things in this man's counsel, speaking of worldly wise men's counsel, that thou must utterly abhor. First, his turning thee out of the way. Second, his laboring to render the cross odious to thee. And third, his setting thy feet in that way that leadeth unto the administration of death. So Evangelist says, you ought to hate worldly wise men's advice and the fact that you took it. Why? Because that advice, the worldly wise men says, reject 
the counsel of God. Reject the utter wicked nature of evil and man's ability to get rid of it. Two, you should hate it because he just told you that the cross was nothing. He just told you that the cross was not necessary. You don't need the cross, really. I mean, you're a good Carolinian, aren't you? You don't need to put all your trust in that sacrifice. You've got plenty of your own sacrifices, right? And third, the way of morality, this is another reason to hate worldly wise advice, the way of morality is the way of death. Man and beast you save, O Lord, by the preciousness of the blood of the Savior, Jesus. Your steadfast love, O Lord, is infinite and intervening. So be humble and hateful of all evil. Be full and satisfied in his steadfast love. And be prayerful and watchful along the path. And since it is Father's Day, it is, is this not the job description and calling of a father? To both be humble and hateful of all evil and to teach his children that that is the way. To be full of his steadfast love and to teach that is the way. And to be prayerful and watchful all along the way and to teach our children to be prayerful and watchful all along the way. That was what the father in Proverbs is telling his son. And I think that's what we ought as fathers to lead in that way. Every Christian, of course. But the father's to lead 